In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. Well, I'm here with Paul O'Sullivan again today, and we're going to talk about Commandment 5. Let me start by reading Commandment 5. Exodus 20.12 says, Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. So we're about to look at the first of the next six commandments. Paul, these commandments are grouped, aren't they, into the first four and the next six. So could you talk about that linkage? And is this the start of a new sequence or does it continue on? How do you see it? Yeah, very good. And I'm here with Scott Kardash, my friend Scott. Nice to be with you, Scott. That is critical. Breaking up the commandments into two sections, the first four that deal with God and the next six that deal with our relationships with one another. The last four, or to say the first four commandments, that's the last four we've now finished, they dealt with the relationship that we have with God. And so now we start with a, a totally new framework in the next six commandments, starting from this one, number five, we deal with our relationships with one another. But what that brings to the surface is the relational scope of the Ten Commandments, that is from one to ten, is for us to live in harmony with God and at peace with other people. And Jesus made this point. When he was asked by the scribes and Pharisees, what was the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22? And he said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. So that fits the pattern that we're looking at perfectly for Jesus to summarize it that way. Because we think of the commandments and we think, oh, well, 10 commandments, they're just about what's right and wrong, or what's good and what's bad. No, they're about truth and love and trust and relational integrity, first of all with God and then with one another. And Jesus put it that way, mm. even though what he said is not one of the Ten Commandments. He did quote scripture from Deuteronomy, but he made it clear that's the way he saw them. He summarised the Ten Commandments into those two commandments. Into those two commandments. And that's what we're doing. Mm. It's interesting to be able to, to find this. Rather than contrive something, it's good to discover something that is actually there and then unpack it. So in the study of the first four commandments, we saw that what was set up was the starting point of our relationship with God putting him first and trusting him for our life fulfillment. The next six from number five are the starting point of our relationship with other people, which comes in the form of children and parents, learning to honour and respect and trust another person or persons, it's mum and dad, and it ends up becoming people. <laughs> We learn to live in harmony with them. The same as the first commandment was about honouring God and respecting him as first in our lives. But the fifth commandment also teaches us how to understand and respect not just the persons, not just mum and dad. This is where a person, a, a child, begins to understand and respect the nature of authority itself because it brings order into our lives at so many levels as we grow up into adulthood. And life actually now becomes a series of lessons divinely designed by God, starting with this commandment and through the all following commandments, we'll see how it unfolds, to transform our hearts relationally till we learn to live at peace with other people under God. Mm. Paul, this commandment seems only to be written to children, or is there another way to apply this to us all as adults so that we can obey this commandment? 
Yes, it, it, it's, it is written to children, which is a bit strange, isn't it? Because the children would have to obey this commandment before they can even read it. They're probably obeying this commandment in the sense that mum and dad are explaining to them what is required of them in a loving and caring way. And so they're setting something up, a structure of honour and trust. And so then the child, by the time they can read, they can say, oh, that's good. That's what we've been doing. It gets reinforced. It's the first relationship that we ever have in our lives. And it's the most formational time of our lives. And if you look around, or if you study it historically, the rules of engagement between parents and children are universally similar and logical. It's basically about parents caring and providing for their children and children honouring and respecting their parents. But you look in different cultures and some of them do this more harshly, some are far more relaxed, some move the age limits around. They may have a child under tutelage until they're in their late teens and they're under that father or that mother. And in Europe, in the early days, in, in Rome, and it's there uh, written about the expectations of a father with a son it was as though the father was in charge until he was about 60 in some cultures back there in Rome and Greece. So what we have, though, in our culture, I believe, is the practical and sensible way to see the early part of life formation dealt with in very caring and formational as well as being informational and then sharing that kind of formation and information with other people in the culture that you trust. Becomes a cultural thing where we trust other people to look after our children, to teach them and form them. But the, the first few years are the real times of that area of formation of character. Mm. But it is a two-way street. Apart from the, the scripture here of the fifth commandment, which does speak to children, there's a significant scripture that addresses both parents and children in the New Testament. As you said, is this to adults? Yes, it is. Adults have a great responsibility, so they have to obey this commandment. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, children, obey your parents. Right, so he's repeating commandment 5. This is the right thing to do because God has placed them in authority over you, explaining to the children how, how the system works. Honour your father and mother. This is the first of the commandments of God that ends with a promise. And this is the promise that if you honour your father and mother, yours will be a long life, full of blessing. There's your New Testament amplifying this relationship. Care, formation, information, response, honour. And then the parents are addressed, which they are not addressed as being part of the equation in the fifth commandment. Now they're addressed here in the New Testament. And it says, and parents, well, it actually says fathers. As far as we concern, the, the logical thing is talking to parents because they both have a part to play. And the scriptures bear that out clearly anyway in other passages, especially in the book of Proverbs. And parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Now the Greek word there for anger is exasperation. Don't provoke them to exasperation by the way you treat them. And you can picture what that would look like, can't you? Mm. Pushing your weight around and, and treating a child as if they're just getting in the way and move out of the way and I'm in charge here and I told you to do that. And the child actually feels belittled in that. Well, it goes on in that scripture. It says, don't provoke them to exasperation by the way you treat them, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. That's Ephesians. In Colossians, which is a similar book to Ephesians, that Paul wrote, I believe, he adds something else. He says, because this will discourage them. Mm. We want to encourage people that we seek to form insofar as their life formation and their road to success and understanding of life. When they're discouraged, they'll give up. God does not want anybody giving up on this journey that he set for them. And it's interesting that it, it says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In the um, King James Bible, it says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
Now, you would think that nurture meant being kind and gentle, and admonition means, it would seem to mean, tut, tut, tut. When you look at the original words in the Greek, again, nurture actually means that active element of disciplinary correction. It's the word paedia, which means training. That's why I used the words before, bring them up in the training and instruction. So that's the nurture, which is the training and correction, discipline. And then the word admonition is also from a Greek word, which means to put somebody in mind of something. In other words, I've taught you that. Remember, we learnt that. Now I'm putting you in mind of it. That's admonishing somebody. It's not one of these tut-tut words. It's, hey, by the way, remember this so that they're being admonished with instructions. What you see set up here, this two-way street, you can see dignity and respect. It's a mutual giving of dignity to, to this person that's in your care, that is God's child, and you're caring for this life. You show that child dignity mm. and there's, respect. There's accountability both ways. Both ways, mm. yeah. Part of the forming of that life is the informing. So teaching is included in the training of a child because they need to understand the correct values, the attitudes that will equip them for staying on course. It says in the book of Proverbs, which has a lot to do with parents and children, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. Mm. But for us even, it doesn't matter how old we are, while ever we live, we're learning. We're being taught something by somebody who knows a little bit more than us, all of us. And so we're learning, and when we've learned, we can then properly inform and form another life. What a privilege that is. Mm. So as we learn, we learn to teach. Are there other scriptures that give advice for parents and children? Yeah, well, I mentioned just a little earlier about the book of Proverbs. It's an amazing book. And there are many instructions in that book about young people listening to the advice and instruction from both the father and the mother and getting wisdom and keeping company with the right kinds of friends. It's interesting when it, when it actually speaks these words to the young child to take the advice and instruction from the father and the mother, it uses two different words. It says, listen to the instruction of your father and obey the law of your mother. Mm. Two different words and the word law there is Torah. And what it implies or what it actually says if you look into the root of that word it means the modeling of the of the life the life of care and compassion and sacrifice it says let your mother be the model for certain things whereas your father is the one that will teach you and instruct you in principles but your mother there is something that you must learn from her that is not just written down it is something that comes from a life Fathers have to do this too, of course. But I think there's something special there that they're given us a place of honour, mum and dad. And the child has to learn as they grow up to keep company with the right sort of people. In the book of Proverbs, it says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But this foolishness is not related to any lack of intelligence or even silly, playful behaviour. The root word in the Hebrew is Wayul, W-I-Y-L. It's the attitude of a heart that's determined to have its own way. It means perverse, rebellious, contradictory and stubborn. You think, no, kids aren't like that. Uh, oh yeah, they are. They need restraint, you see. That's mm. why there is this thing about order. Mm. So Scott, where do you think that foolishness comes from? Well, it originally stemmed in the Garden of Eden, didn't it, when Adam made a decision to disobey God. Exactly. The first of the uh, children to ever really have to come under this commandment. I speak to parents a lot who say, oh, golly, I don't know. If only I could have been a better parent. My kids didn't do what I said. And I say, yeah, well, the best parent there ever was, God, his kids didn't do what he said either. I said, it's bound up in the heart of a child. And you think, why? Well, we're human beings. We are created beings. God is an uncreated being. That's the name of this series. God is uncreated being. We are created beings. Therefore, the human condition is one of recognising that somehow we're less than perfect, less than God. We get this sense of separation. 
But with God as an uncreated being, he within himself, and it says this in the Bible in 1 John 5, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agree as one person. They're in one accord. But we as being created beings have a self-consciousness and have had it from the beginning. And it causes us to fragment ourselves off into a mindset of separation and to become independent from the very source of our life. And that's just a reality. It's a reality of, of the order of things, of the way things relate to one another. Our self-consciousness led to disobedience. Now that will be corrected. God has put in a plan of redemption for that foolishness to be dealt with, mm. to be transformed into compliance and obedience and harmony, to oneness. Just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have oneness, we have been designed to have oneness with God, and that is when we are joined to uncreated being to God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He died that we might have his life. Mm. He sent the Holy Spirit to engender that life through us, and that brings a response, not of foolishness, not of separation, but of oneness. Only God could have thought of that. Mm to bring uncreated being into being created being through Jesus and then joining them together. Mm. And here we are. Mm. Well, which is why Jesus said, I am the way, that uniquely he is the way. And the truth and, and the, the life. life. That's exactly right. Yeah. You don't just synthesise this mm. in your own head and say, oh, well, I'm one with God. You have to know that you have been redeemed. Mm. That's right. By the life of Jesus, mm. by the plan of the Father in sending his Son to do this. We can actually be formed in this revelation. It's almost like we start again. We've done our growing up and we've been rebellious. We've gone through all of that. And God says, yeah, I can see all that happening. But I want to reveal something to you that is the reality of your life, that there is a life within now I'm going to bring you up as a father. I am now going to train you to be the person you were created to be. Yeah. There's an interesting example in the Bible about how not to bring up children and how not to help a child understand this need for what I call transformational restraint for their character formation. We're going through that, you and I, Scott, mm. every day of our lives from a loving father called transformational restraint and instruction, etc. It's in 1 Samuel, and it goes through the story for about four chapters about a prophet called Eli. And he had two sons with funny names, Phinehas and Hophni, and they were his disobedient sons who'd brought shame on their father because of their disgraceful behaviour as priests. They were priests. He was a prophet. They were priests. And they behavior was immoral. It was with the women who came to the tabernacle of God. It doesn't give a lot of detail, but it tells you it was, it was pretty bad. When Eli heard about this, because people were talking about it, he complained to his sons and he said, why do you do such things? It's a bit late, isn't it? Mm. But he'd never learned to bring restraint and sanctions to those boys as they grew up. Train up a child in the way it should go and he won't depart from it. That works both ways. Let them get away with what they like, they won't depart from it. But they will hit the wall one day because they'll be brought to account. And it will be seen, it gets out there. They have to be warned and told there are consequences for their own good. I mean, God has consequences for us. God is very merciful and very kind. There's a beautiful scripture in Second. Timothy chapter 2, which says, if we become unfaithful, God remains faithful. And you think, hey, what is that, a license to just be careless? No, if you're trying, but you're just not getting there and you're getting careless with it, God will stay faithful. He'll keep putting on the restraint. But then the scripture goes on to say, but if we deny him, he denies us. Now that's where the sanction kicks in. That's where the enforcement of the restraint kicks in because if we deny him, that's like us saying to our Father, Heavenly Father, I'm going to withhold the respect and honour you require of me, God. I'm over it. You know what God says back? 
All right, well, I'm going to withhold the favour and blessing you presume you can have from me. Now, that's about as concise as I can make it. And that goes down a whole lot of different ways of implementation. <laughs> but it, it works. But Eli warned them of God's judgment. But giving verbal warnings was as far as his discipline and correction ever went. His sons didn't heed him. If Eli could look back, he would have realised he should have suspended them from their duties way a lot earlier. Mm. In fact, there are stories of these two eating all the sacrifices and taking the bits, best bits for themselves and offending the other people in the community. He never, ever corrected that either. So that would have been as they were growing up. But I believe if he would have learned to suspend them from a withheld privileges from them or suspended from duties he would have not only done them a favor but they would have been able to protect the people that they were putting care of it has ramifications mm. that's what a parent is there for it's you just can't talk to children and get them to behave because the talking can become shouting that's really not effective mm. it's just louder talking so we have appropriate sanctions and restraints and the heart of the child becomes convinced um, that he's not in control of the situation. He realises, I can't get away with this. I mm. thought I could. And he experiences the caring correction in his life as a child that starts to remedy that foolishness in the heart. Mm. There are remedies. There's a good scripture in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11. It says, because sanctions against wrongdoing are not executed promptly, it becomes fully set in people's hearts to continue doing wrong. Mm. It's a principle. So bringing sanctions and restraints and discipline and correction to children, it's really setting them up for success in life, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. If you don't do that, then they don't learn those lessons about honouring authority and they often don't succeed because they're rubbing up against authority their whole lives, aren't they? Forever. It's, yeah. it's, it's a journey yeah. right through yeah. But unless they learn it later on in life, probably the hard way. They'll be challenged. Mm. And I've, I've shared this with parents who say, we did the best we could and they went to the right kind of school. It had the discipline. They didn't listen to the teachers. They go to work, they muck around there. I don't know what's going to happen next. And I'd say, well, I'll tell you what will happen next. The police. Yeah. Because they're part of God's order too. And that's it. It's waiting yeah. to happen. God forbid. You'd rather that the child, as you say, learnt. It's much easier yeah. to learn that lesson early on in life than later on oh, in life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see that this means more than just saying words about to do something or don't do something. But what about using more than words about doing something? Is it just about giving orders and enforcing them? No, that's right. It's not just what you say, it's what you do yourself, isn't it, really? So it's the setting of an example. Those children are watching everything, and so is God. Mm. Monkey see, monkey do. I'm talking about the children mm. now. Well, children are very quick to pick up hypocritical behaviour, aren't they? Well, that's it. Yeah. That, they see it see straight it. away. That's right. And we think we're getting away with it. <laughs> they see right through it. And the thing is, don't model that. And that's why Jesus was such a good teacher. But he wasn't just a teacher that had lots of instruction to give. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus taught as one with authority and not as the scribes. It says that in, in Matthew. But what does that mean, to teach with authority? Did he shout? You know, <laughs> Did he give them tough exams? Partly it means that what he said to do, he was already doing. And what he said for people to do, people did because they saw it was doable and he did it and they saw that that was good what he did now these were the people that wanted to know what to do i mean there were people that wouldn't listen to jesus and they defied him but you can imagine if people really wanted to know how could you get a better teacher yeah, than well, somebody that knew well, remember when they went to arrest him and they, the guards actually came back and said we've never well we're, they said, where is he well We've never heard anyone speak like this man. That's right. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't arrest him. They go they back, and, him. Go back and, and arrest him. That's good. See, yeah. they were impressed. Mm. People can pick it. So that means he, he did speak with, a, with authority. So he, he taught clearly. So there was understanding. And he showed them how to do what he said. Through example, through illustration, he did parables. 
But a lot of his teaching was parables. So he'd say to people, all right, now I've told you what to do, and I've told you why to do it, but I can see you're still not getting it. He'd say, so here's a story. It's a story about somebody going on a journey and he falls amongst thieves and robbers and gets beaten up. Everybody walks past except somebody who's presumed from a, another nation who's supposed to be the enemy. It's, this is the story of the Good Samaritan and the people who were supposed to be his friends and colleagues passed him by. This person who was supposed to be uh, the uh, antagonist that they weren't even to talk to patches him up, looks after him and cares for him. And Jesus asks at the end of that story, he says to the people who were talking to him and questioning him, he said, which one of those people was this person's neighbour? Boy, that's teaching. And he gives an example and he, he made it hit home because it was, he was talking about them and they understood the dynamics of all of that sort of hostility and everything. So parables were great. They help a person see themselves Teaching anyone is a great privilege, but it always comes with the responsibility and accountability of not only teaching it, but doing it. Paul the Apostle said, be imitators of me, but he qualifies it by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that was sincere, that was genuine. <laughs> Every life needs direction, needs purpose, it can ideally and perhaps only be set by people who own authority. They're the ones that had the experience enough to know the end from the beginning in whatever it is that they're trying to bring direction for. It's no good if they've just got some theory. If they have authority and they've been endorsed, right, you have authority to do this, that means that that person in authority can advise not just about this is the way to get a good job done, They'll advise about the consequences of what happens when you get it wrong because they've been there. They've done that. They come from a place of humbly teaching the whole scenario and they give the cautions and the encouragements that are necessary. That's part of the fifth commandment. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Mm. As we grow up, we come across other areas of authority in our lives. Can you give us some examples of some of those areas and how we should respond? Okay, I briefly mentioned that little hit list, you know, about parents and, and then school and, and then work and so on. But school life, which is mentioned in the Bible, is a, a real place of formation. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, A child has to do what his tutors and managers tell him to until he reaches whatever age his father sets. There is a time for a child not any longer to be just a student. Uh, that Bible goes on to say, for when we were students or under tutors, we were just like the hired hand around the house sort of thing. We were on the job, the apprentice learning. But when the set ages come, the father says, okay, well, now you're part of what I'm doing. I've wanted you to have the right training because now you're going to help me look after this business that I'm in. We're in our partners. God does that with us too. Mm. So there is delegated authority. And a young adult then is out of school or she's out of school and they're under the authority of someone else in the workplace. Mm. Is this work place a two-way agreement as it is with parents and children? Yep. Everything to do with the fifth commandment is a two-way street. Whatever is the status or the structure of that authority figure or role or experience. So in the workplace, the two-way agreement is really for both parties to work honestly and productively together. In fact, to enjoy the experience. Family should be enjoyable. Disciplining kids should be enjoyable. School should be enjoyable. I know some wonderful teachers that actually made school enjoyable. They got them to enjoy what they were learning. You know what it's like as you've been through your experience in the workforce. You've had to learn things and, and get promotions and then you've had to be in charge and manage teams of people you know the difference between what it's like to have a, an enjoyable workplace atmosphere and a nasty workplace atmosphere. Mm. It just kills mm. the life in the place. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be well, like that. It kills that. passion too. And people, yeah, it? it's the discouragement again, yeah. isn't it? Mm. There are agendas around, but if you can have an agreement that we're going to start to enjoy this, there will be the checks and balances along the way as far as performance, of course. 
You've got to be able to evaluate what you do and you've got to make payment for what somebody's done. In the Word of God, again, in the New Testament, God shows us what this two-way street is, what the authority structure is, the rules of engagement. It's in Colossians chapter 3, and I'm reading it from a modern translation here. It says this, Workers abide by all the agreements set by your employers, not only trying to please them when they're watching you, but all the time. Serve them willingly because of your love for the Lord and because you want to please him. Work hard and cheerfully at all you do, just as though you were working for the Lord and not merely for your employers, remembering that it is the Lord Christ who is going to pay you, giving you your full portion of all he owns. You see, he's there in the workplace, like he's there in the family, he's there in the school. Then it goes on to say, he is the one you're really working for. And if you don't do your best for him, he will pay you in a way that you won't like. For he has no special favourites who can get away with shirking. And then it talks to the employers and it says, you employers must be just and fair to all your workers. Always remember that you too have a master in heaven who is closely watching you. There's no free lunches. You don't get away with anything in life. We think we do. Mm. But there's accountability. Mm. And it's best to know what to expect and to set the, th set the thing up right, correctly in the first place. So as employees and employers, if we can just be willing to work in agreement for what is good and productive, we're following the pattern that God wants to have us live in life working with him. God still works. <laughs> right. And God worked. He was the most creative and productive worker of all time. Everything he created, he evaluated. And he said it was good. Now, you think, oh, well, look at his own work. You know, who else could evaluate? Well, nobody's bigger than God. Nobody could say, that wasn't really good, God. God knows, and he is the only one that can evaluate it. <laughs> and he's pronounced his work good, so it was good. And the first chapter of the book of Genesis is the record of God's working week. It was a good week and a lot of work was done by God in that week, however long the days were. We've talked about this before. But in that week, God established the pattern for all work. Firstly, the work is a privilege. It wasn't a burden. God loved to do it. He wanted to create. And we were created to be creative and productive. God worked and enjoyed it. So work should be enjoyable and creative and productive and it should all be evaluated to see if it's good. So how do we enjoy work? Well, it's up to us. We can do it with a good heart. If we know we're doing it for the Lord, or even if we respect and care for the people we're working with, because they're God's children, it takes a revelation of what life is about in order to go in a direction that is worth going for. When you encourage a person to get a job, encourage them to work, you encourage them, do the best you can. Be loyal to that place. Give your best. And they might say, oh, yeah, but I don't like the setup and they could be doing better. No, I'm not going to try hard. Who, who are you actually penalising by doing that? You might think, I'm making this hard for the boss because I don't like who they are. You're penalising yourself. Mm. It's your place of work. Mm. And you can do it with a good heart and then you'll enjoy it and if you enjoy it, you'll make the workplace an enjoyable place to be because God's working alongside you. We mm. saw it. He's in there, in the workplace. Well, Paul, how does government and political authority fit into this commandment? Authority in government is under God. Every, all authority is under God. It would be good to look at this and compare the church and the state because that comes up a lot. They're both forms of authority under God's authority, but they both have different purposes. But let's start with 
the authority of the government and see what the Bible says about our being under God and under the authority of the state at the same time before we look at the church, okay. right? So we're under God and under the state. It says in Romans chapter 13, be a good citizen. All governments are under God. And insofar as there is peace and order, it is God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God and God will hold you responsible. You think, well, how's, what's God going to do if you're actually being irresponsible as a citizen? Well, here's the answer. Duly constituted authorities that God puts in place are only a threat if you're trying to get away with something. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. So God puts the sanctions in the hands of the state for people who are bad citizens. Do you want to be on good terms with the government? Back in the scripture here. Be a responsible citizen and you'll get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. But if you're breaking the rules right and left, watch out. The police aren't there just to be admired for their uniforms. They carry weapons. God also has an interest in keeping order and he uses them to do it. In the King James Version, it says they are his ministers to do this very thing. That's why you must live responsibly, not just to avoid punishment, but also because it's the right way to live that is also why you pay taxes. Isn't that interesting? Mm. There's a reason for taxes in Romans chapter 13. So that an orderly way of life can be maintained. That's by the state. Fulfill your obligations as a citizen. Pay your taxes, pay your bills and respect your leaders. Okay, so now we talked about the conflict between church and state that has been an age-old one that rages as a conflict because of our perspective on what comes first, the state or the church, and who, who really runs the lives of people. Well, we've just seen that God has ordained that the state runs us as citizens. So there really is no conflict between church and state. It can exist in the imaginations of people with an agenda or who have been wrongly given the expectation that the church has to run the country. There have been many theories to try and make the distinction between the state's authority and church authority. And the problem is solved very simply when you realise that there is no conflict as long as people know that church and state can exist side by side, separate entities in themselves, both under the authority of God, because they both serve different purposes. And there's been a lot of harm put in by church people to try and run the state. Way back in the early centuries, the church actually was the state, and that took a lot of untangling over the centuries, <laughs> very much. And I believe it's finding its place now, and so much unnecessary effort was put in in retaliation by the state to then run the church. And they, you can't have it either way. You can't have the church running the state and you can't have the state running the church. God runs them both. We know that we're actually getting his purpose achieved. And so what does the state exist for? Upholding law and order. That's what we read. And that's why they don't bear the gun in vain or the sword. That's why they're given weapons. And that refers to magistrates and police and so on. And the church can't put people into jail. They can't execute them for wrongdoing. I know some churches seem to police their people. You don't do that. The state is God's instrument for the keeping of law and order. So what does the church exist for? In society, in the world, it exists as God's authority structure for the sanctification of society in the earth. To call people aside as unto the Lord, to the kingdom of God. That's the church's role. It's called the pillar and ground of truth. Now, at its best, it can reflect and impart the life and truth and love of God to the world. It's a beautiful thing for the church to do. And it can bring this godly influence into every sphere of society that you can think of. doesn't matter what it is. It could be politics. It could be art. It could be productivity, industrial, education. It's not saying the church can't be in politics. 
what a wonderful thing to be able to go in as part of the kingdom of God and influence the political structure and framework relationally and wisely and I believe truthfully from God's point of view. Sure, every sphere of society can be touched by the church. But Jesus didn't try to organise the politics of the Middle East or the Roman Empire, but he certainly influenced it. He was in there. He didn't try and organise it. People wanted him to. They thought that they were going to be seated with him on their horses in the kingdom that he kept talking about. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the paradox is that it is only this inner kingdom that can truly change this world. The real change and transformation comes for the world through the church. Mm. But the order and penalties and everything else that comes through the state. The church has always had that role and it continues to do it in a way that's under the command of Jesus. He's the head of the church and the Holy Spirit. And we are co-laborers under God and with God to be part of that beautiful directive in the world. It doesn't matter wherever the sphere of human society operates. There are so many things that people are doing in the world. God will be working through there somehow. And he'll always seek to work through an authority structure according to this fifth commandment. There's no other commandment. There's no 11th commandment that says, well, this is how we're going to run the oil industry. No, it is all according to what God put in this fifth commandment. It starts off with parents and children. It's about life and authority mm. and peace and order. God is a God of order and he always backs the authority principle. For you as a parent, God will back your authority if you're using the authority principle, but he won't back coercion or manipulation. And that's why he starts with honour your father and your mother, because he wants to set in motion the relational, caring principles of truth and order. It's only that authority principle that can check the unrestrained behaviour of human nature in the world. Mm. Not just so that we can all have some peace and order and not so much chaos around the place. Yeah, that, that's part of it. But it's to see lives transformed. Mm. What he wants to do. Well, Paul, we talked about this commandment in the context of parents and children and in the workplace and the context of government and how we should respond. But what happens if the one in authority doesn't live up to their end of the bargain? You, you said before it was a two-way street. So how are we to obey this commandment when those in authority are not behaving as they should and don't have that true authority? And for instance, what about those that live in a totalitarian state? When there is an ungodly, if you want to call it that, I think that's what you're referring to, an ungodly authority over you, how do you respond obediently to mm. that? Sometimes you have to be disobedient because you have to obey God first. But the strange thing is you can submit to that authority and yet be disobedient. Well, you can still honour that authority. Yes. And be disobedient to what they've asked you to do. That's right, because you're serving God first. And you think, oh, do I get away with that? No, you don't. You go to jail. But you go to jail. That's what the apostles did. You go to jail for the right reasons. For the right reasons, yes. Because they said, are we to serve God or to serve you guys that are wanting to stop us from preaching the gospel? Your response is always to God. The people in authority may be treating you badly. You may be mistreated and abused. Now, it's not getting vengeance back on them. It's a terrible deal. I mean, there's lots of people in the world going through that now. There are people that have grown up in families that have done that to them or been in the workplace that are being mistreated like that. But we've, we've had a look, haven't we? We've said, do it as unto the Lord. It's him you're working for. And if people are being mistreated badly in a relational situation, it's tragic. I'm glad to see that there's more awareness of this and it's being addressed by the state. What God has got is his presence. He doesn't disappear. He's just not absent from that. He hears the cry of those people that are in distress. And it speaks about it in the Psalms. He hears the cry of the fatherless and the oppressed. And if somebody prays that prayer to God, Lord, I need help. I've never seen that prayer not answered in one way or another. We do have to look to the Lord ultimately. I've been to Russia. It was back in the 90s. And I shared 
and lived with Christians who were living within the harsh and rigid rules of the state. It was in St. Petersburg. And they were wonderful people. These people, as Christians, in a totalitarian state, were flourishing in the Lord with joy and victory in their heart. They could do nothing about the conditions they were living under. They were trying to come out into this glasnost and perestroika and somehow become more friendly with the West, but they were very rigid and harsh if you looked at what was going on, just one layer down. But these Christians were able to cope with that and they were having to worship and gather together in teaching and in church meetings under the radar. I had a minder when I was there. His name was Big Andrew. He went with me everywhere I went. And I said to him once, are you afraid that we're going to get mugged? He said, no. But he said, we are being watched. And I said, how do you know? And he said, did you see those two big guys sitting near the door in the restaurant that we all walked to? We used to walk three miles a day across beautiful bridges in St. Petersburg. And we go to this restaurant and have a meal. And he said, did you see those two big guys? And I said, yeah, we could hardly get out the door. And he said, they've been back in the area where we do the teaching sessions. They've been hanging around outside. I said, oh, I really didn't notice them. There's lots of big people around. He said, that's the mafia. I said, I thought the mafia was Italian. He said, no, we have a mafia here in Russia. And he said, and they watch everything. And they're watching you. I said, oh, but I haven't done anything. He said, no. He said, that's okay. So you're not going to get into trouble. If you do anything that they think is rash or trying to usurp some kind of power thing, take over, they'll be on to you. And he said, and if that happens to you, it's going to happen to me. So he said, I'm taking good care of you. He was a, a good guy. I understood then that that was oppressive, but they saw the Holy Spirit growing the church. These were people from all over the place and they came as Bible students and they met with a local underground church. And that local underground church was growing as I stayed there. For the couple of weeks I was there, there was growth. Holy Spirit was adding people to that church. And those people that were being added grew into a faith and a loving unity and spiritual maturity that really is a great example to the church in the West. Mm. There was no complacency and the churches weren't chasing the dollar. They didn't have big ads on telly. They didn't make these big promises. They taught the gospel and they cared for the people and the people were sacrificial. They were pursuing something, not the money. They were pursuing God. The church seems to pursue God much more rigorously under persecution than when they're not under persecution. Yeah, you'd wish it was different, wouldn't you? Mm. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> you'd really wish it. But, but you know what? Trying to get a takeaway point coming home when I flew home thinking, what is it that God is honouring there and what are they fitting into? What's the kind of thing that's happening that they have got personally? What's their authority? I just thought... They don't have any authority. I thought, no, they do. They're acting like they've got an authority. They understood that God gives each person an individual sovereignty under God. Each one of us individually is who we are under the sovereignty of God and we obey God first. That's powerful. That is a greater authority than what communism had. It was their individual sovereignty under God. They obeyed God first and they took the consequences if the state didn't approve. It's God's way. Fifth commandment. Mm. Okay, Paul, so just as we wrap up, could you like just directly address how the fifth commandment relates to the fourth commandment? So that linkage there and perhaps how it could be used as a diagnostic tool. The big progression, if you like, is from one concept, one whole set of relational integrity, which is between us and God, the first four commandments, to now a new set, a structure of relational integrity, which is with other people, starting with our parents. So there's the jump from the fourth to the fifth. Mm -hmm. I believe you can only obey the fifth commandment properly if you've learned how to obey the first four. Because until you have a revelation of God as your authority, you're mucking around. You're in some kind of a immovable perceptions of who's in charge and who isn't if you're trying to organize authority in the world and it's like a competition 
It's, it's one-upmanship. It's all kinds of things, but it isn't often real authority. But if you know you're under the authority of God, you can obey the fifth commandment and all the things we've talked about today. Okay, so that's authority and that's peace and order. Mm. The order comes out of authority. And we're part of bringing order out of chaos in our lives, hopefully, where we are. But now when you get to the sixth commandment, we are really not going to be talking about authority. And you think, well, I thought it was all about authority by what you've been talking about. Yeah, that's to get you going into a relational integrity with other people. You've got to understand the authority thing. When you get to the sixth commandment, it's about your attitude of care for another person's well-being. Because remember we talked about fathers do not provoke your children to anger, otherwise they'll get discouraged. And a child can provoke the parents to anger if they're disobedient. Why does a child persist in doing that? Because they have an independent mind and they believe that they should have what they want. And parents aren't giving them what they want, so they will create a fuss. That child is growing up with an inbuilt expectation that if I make enough noise, I might get what I want. There is this sense of, I don't trust them to make my life feel fulfilled. That's just, that's the foolishness we talked about. Now that's in people. When that bleeds out, not in so much as authority, but in your peers, in your friends, and you want to be able to get what you want because you've got a right to get everything you want, and you get resistance from people, and that makes you frustrated that they're not giving way to your will, then you get angry. And the sixth commandment says, do not be angry without a cause. I mean, you can be indignant about something that's wrongly done, but it's this personal thing. Do not be angry without cause. That's what Jesus interpreted the sixth commandment as being. Mm, Because literally it says, do not murder. Do not murder. The commandment is do not kill. The New Testament does this with all the commandments. Jesus took this commandment on the Sermon on the Mount. He was preaching and he says, in the law it says do not kill but i say do not be angry so he pinned down what the problem was frustration and anger at not getting your own way and that's because you haven't had the formation of life as a child in trusting other people to want to do the best for you you always feel you're missing out and so you buck authority And there is a track record in a person's life that gets angry and that gets passionate and kills. First of all, they kill a relationship. There's a track record there of them not knowing how to manage the fifth commandment. Mm. So failure in the fifth commandment leads to chaos in the sixth commandment. Mm. Oh, that's great, Paul. Look, I look forward to talking more about the transformational nature of the sixth commandment with you next week. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Scott.